Howdy, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Rotten to the Core. I'm your host, Josh Waters, and today we're going to pull the curtain back on one of Hollywood's most beloved icons, Charlie Chaplin. Together, let's find out how this man who put smiles on so many faces was rotten to the core. The Japanese have a saying, you have three faces. The first face you show to the world. The second face you show to your close friends and your family. The third face, however, you never show anyone. It is the truest reflection of who you are. Most of the world only saw the one face of Charlie Chaplin, a comedy-driven vagabond who only wanted to make people laugh. But those closest to him were exposed to the faces that he never wanted to show to the rest of the world. According to Peter Aykroyd's 2014 biography, Charlie Chaplin, A Brief Life, Chaplin rose to the most famous man in the world by the age of 26. This compelling background, combined with a huge Hollywood salary and the respect and adoration Chaplin commanded, despite being about five foot five, allowed the actor to sleep with what he estimated were about 2,000 women during his lifetime. Charlie Chaplin was born on April 16, 1889 in the South London slums to Hannah and Charles Chaplin Sr., who were both music hall entertainers. His mother was mentally unstable, and his father was a deadbeat. His father walked out on his mother and Chaplin when he was one, claiming to be unsure if Chaplin was even his real son. And then Chaplin and his half-brother Sidney spent their childhood in workhouses and charity homes after their mother was committed to an asylum in 1903. By the time Charlie turned 12, his father would be dead after succumbing to his alcoholism and his mother lived in the asylum for 18 years before Chaplin moved her to California in 1921. So, right off the bat, definitely not the easiest of childhoods. Whenever I hear about people's lives like this, I often think, I wonder how I would have turned out under those same circumstances. Do you do that too, or is it just a me thing? (laughs) He is a genuine rags-to-riches, self-made man. At 10 years old, Chaplin joined a troupe of professional clog dancers called the Lancashire Lads, and they toured across England. Charlie would admit that he had been a newspaper vendor, toy maker, printer, doctor's boy, and much more as a child just to get by. Chaplin also landed roles in several stage plays and joined a burlesque company called Casey's Circus when he was a teenager. With his older brother Sidney, who was also a performer, he joined the Carnot Company, a well-known comedy theater and vaudeville touring group. As a member of the Carnot Company Theater Group, Chaplin toured the United States where he caught the eye of the New York Motion Picture Company in 1913, and he landed a contract with the Keystone Film Company, and he was earning about $150 per week. The first movie featuring Charlie Chaplin was Making a Living in 1914. Wearing a large mustache, Chaplin played a charming swindler named Edgar English. Well, when you think of Charlie Chaplin, for most of us, we think of his character, The Little Tramp. I was surprised by how he looked without the costume, honestly. Kinda gave me Eddie Redmayne vibes. 
Chaplin's little tramp character first appeared in the 1914 movie Kid Auto Races at Venice. The character was a spectator who disrupted a go-kart race. The movie was shot at a real race with actors improvising with actual race spectators. In his year at Keystone Film Company, Chaplin developed his little tramp character and made 35 comedy shorts. Chaplin later described how he chose his trademark costume, saying, I wanted everything to be a contradiction. The pants baggy, the coat tight, the hat small, and the shoes large. Among the comedy shorts Chaplin made in 1914, 20 Minutes of Love was his first directing effort. Of another 1914 comedy, her friend the bandit. No known copy survives, though. The now lost film starred Chaplin and Mabel Norman, and they co-directed as well. He was known as the most demanding man in Hollywood. He would reshoot scenes hundreds of times, and rather than actually directing, he would act out everyone's roles for them to show them how to do them correctly. I know that I am very uneasy if other people do it for me, said Charlie Chaplin. In The Tramp, made in 1915 and directed by Chaplin, his iconic creation became the more familiar character that audiences knew well. The little tramp became less slapstick and grew more poignant and caring. Signing a $670,000 a year contract with the Mutual Film Company, Chaplin became the highest paid film actor in the world. He made a dozen short comedies for Mutual, including The Floor Walker, the first movie to employ the running staircase gag in which actors run down an escalator, or vice versa, and don't get anywhere. I love the little fun facts you find out when researching history. I never thought about things like who invented these jokes or gags we all grew up with. I think about the hidden staircase gag where someone pretends to walk downstairs behind a counter. And just think of how people must have lost their minds when that person, whoever did, invented it. As the public quickly succumbed to Chaplinitis, it promptly went to Chaplin's head. Which was also the fastest way to be hired by him. Wink, wink. One of the first women to experience this, according to Aykroyd, was Edna Purviance. A 19-year-old actress Chaplin hired from an ad he placed in the San Francisco Chronicle, which read, Wanted the prettiest girl in California to take part in a moving picture. The pair quickly became more than co-stars, but Chaplin's dedication to his work eclipsed the attention he paid his girlfriend. When he visited New York, Aykroyd notes, Chaplin would not write to her, and he became surprised when she started seeing another man. Chaplin made the bond in 1918 at his own expense to promote the sale of U.S. Liberty Bonds to help finance the nation's military effort in World War I. The movie featured several comic sketches portraying types of bonds such as friendship and marriage. In 1919, Chaplin joined actress Mary Pickford after Douglas Fairbanks and director D.W. Griffiths to create United Artists Studios. They really wanted to try to exert more control over their work because at the time, these celebrities were pretty much owned by the studios. They had control over everything about them, including their looks, their diet, private lives, and anything that would look bad towards the studio. It's part of why Charlie would marry a few of his wives. There would be a pregnancy scare, whether true or not, and he would quickly marry them to prevent a scandal and smear his public image. 
In October 1918, at age 29, Chaplin married 16-year-old Mildred Harris, a popular child actress at the time. During a time when his routine at parties was to imitate how the leading ladies of the day might experience orgasm, Aykroyd writes, with an even younger starlet, the 16-year-old Mildred Harris, who soon informed him she was pregnant with his child, while spooked by both at the prospect of domestic responsibility and of a scandal, Chaplin arranged a marriage, which took place in October of 1918. According to Aykroyd, Chaplin soon started to regret it all, though. He thought Harris had bamboozled him into marriage and found her embarrassing, a bad actress, and no mental heavyweight. He would be short and moody with her, often leaving her home for days at a time without telling her where he was going. After she genuinely became pregnant with his child, she had a nervous breakdown due to his mistreatment. They had a son in 1919 who lived for just three days, and they separated later that year. When they did divorce in 1920, Harris got some property and a $100,000 settlement. He said he had to be free to live his own life and do as he pleased. He was short-tempered, impatient, and treated me like a cretin, she protested. So this is where it gets even worse. <laughs> in 1920, the same year, he and Harris went through a bitter divorce. Chaplin met the 12-year-old who would become his next wife, Lolita McMurray, who later went by the professional name of Lita Gray. Although Chaplin admired Gray, even commissioning a portrait of her, she's 12, he had a portrait painted of a 12-year-old girl. Good heavens. Ugh. He held off on pursuing her until she was more appropriate for him at the age of 16 years old and playing a small role in his 1924 film, The Gold Rush. She, too, became pregnant out of wedlock at 16 years old. Chaplin spooked this time by the prospect of criminal charges, secretly married her in November of 1924. She had two of his children, Charles Chaplin Jr. and Sidney Earl Chaplin, before they divorced amidst affairs and the failure of her career in 1927. He paid her a record settlement of $825,000 and the legal cost of the divorce came to nearly $1 million. One Chaplin biographer said their marriage inspired the novel Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov about a man's obsession with a 12-year-old girl. I did look up the book. If you'd like to read it, just be warned. Just the description was too much for me to handle. So read at your own risk. I'd rather just not. After his second marriage ended, Chaplin went on to write, produce, direct, and star in some of his most famous movies, including The Gold Rush in 1925. At the time, talkies were becoming more popular, but Charlie wasn't convinced that they would last as the current fad, and in 1931, he made The Silent City Lights, which included a musical score he composed himself. Now at this time, the United States was deep in the middle of the Great Depression, and it seemed that Chaplin and his lovable tramp character was just the mental break that people needed. After the end of World War II, he would go from just being another famous person into an icon. That status, though, would go to his head, and he would start to see himself as basically untouchable. 
a move that would get him into trouble later on. Well, 1936 would be the last time fans would see Chaplin's little tramp character in the movie Modern Times, which is viewed as an interpretation of the extreme poverty and unemployment millions went through during the Great Depression. Later that same year, Charlie would marry his third wife, actress Paulette Goddard, whom he had cast as a street urchin in Modern Times. She was 22 when they first met. Still young, but at least she's over 18. They kept their marriage mainly under wraps, and he didn't introduce her publicly as his wife until 1940. And then they split up in 1942. The actor later said that he had been secretly married, but also said it was a common law marriage. Common law marriage is when a couple lives together for a certain amount of time and acts as if they are married to friends and family without a formal ceremony or license. There are currently only three states that recognize common law marriage today, which are Kansas, Iowa, and Montana. The more you know. In 1940, Chaplin released his first entirely talking film after increasing pressure to venture away from all the silent movies. And The Great Dictator would go on to be nominated for two Academy Awards for Best Actor and Best Picture. Charlie played two different roles in the parody about Hitler and Nazism, a Jewish barber and a fascist leader. Not one to be single for long and a criticism from the U.S. government for allegedly both pro-war and pro-communist sympathizing, Chaplin wedded another much younger woman, Una O'Neill in 1943. While her father, playwright Eugene O'Neill, was, let's say, disgusted by the union. His daughter being barely 18 and marrying a man in his 50s, 54 to be exact, would cause him to cut off all contact with his daughter for the remainder of his life. The couple would go on to have eight children together and remain married until Chaplin's death. Later the same year he married Una, Chaplin would take a hit to his popularity thanks to a paternity suit filed by actress Joan Barry. Blood work was done to prove that he wasn't the father, and the results came back to show that Indeed, he was not the father. But at the time in 1944, that could not be used as evidence in the trial, and Chaplin was forced to pay $75 a week until Barry's child turned 21. That's around $1,300 a week in today's money. But the cost of his untouchable status as an icon would take the most significant hit. In a lot of the biographies I found out about Chaplin, This is where the story generally ends. In an attempt to portray Charlie as a once womanizer turned loving husband. But those marriages were plagued by Chaplin's exacting standards, outbursts, raging temper, and cruelty towards his children. According to Jane Scovel's Una, Living in the Shadows, the actress Joan Collins said that O'Neill catered to her fatherly husband with an almost geisha-like difference. And according to Marlon Brando's autobiography, Chaplin treated Sidney, one of the sons he fathered with Gray, cruelly. When Brando and Sidney, also an actor, worked with Chaplin in the 1967 film A Countess from Hong Kong, Brando writes that Chaplin humiliated his son in front of Brando and the rest of the cast. Sidney told Brando that his father treated all his children this way. Brando was also on the receiving end of Chaplin's anger. 
In front of the whole cast, Chaplin berated me, embarrassing me, telling me that I had no sense of professional ethics and that I was a disgrace to my profession, Brando wrote. His mistake? Arriving on set 15 minutes late. In other words, while more critical biographers paint the picture of an arrogant genius who manipulated those around him with no remorse, Brando is slightly blunter. Chaplin, he writes, was probably the most sadistic man I'd ever met. Well, getting back to the hit on his icon status, Chaplin would be traveling in 1952 to London, and upon trying to return home back to the United States, learned that he was not allowed back due to his un-American activities and sympathies to communists. He would end up moving to Switzerland, though, and Charlie would only return to the U.S. once more in 1972 to receive an Honorary Academy Award and received a 12-minute standing ovation from the audience. In one of his last public appearances, Queen Elizabeth II knighted Chaplin when he was 85, The honor had been proposed and rejected in 1931 because Chaplin did not serve in World War I, and again in 1956 when the conservative British government did not want to damage relations with the United States during the Cold War. Charlie Chaplin had aspired to be a serious actor, but realized that the only way he could become himself was to recreate the sketches, skits, stunts, spoofs, and send-ups of the world he already knew. Along the way, he developed his acrobatic skills, the perfect timing of his funny runs, and most of all, the art of impersonation. He learned his trade as he grew. In 1908, when he joined Fred Carnot's company, he assimilated the skills of mime and speed and sudden changes of pace, which were to become his creative hallmarks. As Aykroyd argues, Chaplin made art out of his misery and pathos like many great clowns. In the words of a later acquaintance, his inner drive and willpower ensured that he never ceased to play a part. He was always on. Aykroyd notes that he lived fully only when he was in a role. Without it, he said he was lost. Naturally, this made him a complicated and damaged human being, dictatorial to work with and unable to sustain a happy marriage until his fourth attempt when he married the 18-year-old Una O'Neill, 36 years his junior, who became his child bride, protector, nurse, and secretary. The long list of sexual conquest along the way and abandoned young starlets who had the misfortune to think that marrying so famous a man would make them happy makes sad if horrible reading. The little tramp, the universal symbol of his creator's early experiences, who could entertain and charm millions effortlessly, seemed to have been a mystery even to his creator, a self-absorbed human being. As the author explains in Making the Great Dictator, his first sound and dialogue film, Chaplin showed many similarities to Hitler. Both had alcoholic fathers, had lived as tramps, needed to dominate the worlds, were subject to rages and paranoia, and used their mesmeric powers to control others. Yet, to be fair, he later admitted had he known about all the concentration camps, the film came out in 1940, Chaplin said, I could not have made the great dictator. He really thought of Hitler before the war as a bad impersonation of me, 
and it's even said that Chaplin might have inspired Hitler's famous mustache. As Ackroyd comments, it was even said that Hitler had imitated the appearance of Chaplin's little fellow as a way of inspiring love and loyalty. I mean, that does make sense. I mean, if you're someone like Hitler, you think, hmm, what can I do that will make people think of me more as lighthearted? The mustache he chose, I can, yeah. Charlie would spend his last years in Switzerland where he lived with Una and their eight children outside Vevey. Chaplin was a harsh and authoritarian father and is self-centered, demanding husband. One of his sons admitted that he never argued with his father. He's too stern, inflexible, and overpowering. And on December 25th, 1977, Chaplin died on a quite ironic date because, as he always said, he had always hated Christmas for its overindulgence. The life of Charlie Chaplin was, let's say, busy. He loved what he did, but at no concern for those closest to him. I was curious about what makes men so keen on being with someone so young. I have the opposite trait myself. Hi, Daddy. Some believe men's preference for younger women is an evolutionary strategy that attracts males to partners who are highly fertile. And because women tend to live longer than men and become their caretakers, Stockholm University demograph Sven Drafel says the attraction to younger women may be because marrying a younger woman extends a man's lifespan, while at the same time it does the opposite for his spouse. Still, others believe the issue is more about power and balance, asserting that the difference in preferred age for a partner is the product of society-determined gender roles. In a society based on the model of the male breadwinner, female homemaker, Women will seek out a man whose economic resources make him a good provider, and men will seek out a woman whose pliability and readiness for reproduction makes her a good housewife. Even though his final marriage lasted for the rest of his life, I wonder if it was based on genuine love, or if he had just found a woman young and pliable enough to follow his commands and whims. Charlie Chaplin lived a life full, full of fame, fortune, heartache, anger, and fear. He was beloved by millions during his lifetime and still today. But sometimes what we see on the screen is just that character. We can forget that there's an actual human being behind that. Charlie was an expert at playing roles, especially as part of a lighthearted, kind, and funny actor. I chose him for this episode because even though he put smiles on the faces of so many, He was a child predator who would hunt out and have sexual relationships with girls in what I believe to be some kind of grooming process to find a young, subservient wife that he could bend and shape into his perfect caretaker. And that, to me, makes you a rotten man. Well, guys, I hope this episode has opened your eyes on not always believing what you see at face value. You only see the face that person wants to show you, and they're hiding one or more just below the surface. If you would like to stay up to date on our current episodes of Rotten to the Core or have suggestions for future ones or you just want to leave me a comment, please follow and like us on Facebook at It's Rotten to the Core. 
Instagram at It's Rotten to the Core, or Twitter at Rotten in History. Or just go over to itsrottentothecore.com. And again, thank you for supporting Rotten to the Core. I hope you all enjoy today's episode about Charlie Chaplin. I am Josh Waters, and I will talk at you later. Have an excellent beginning of April, and yay, we made it to springtime, finally. Warm weather? Yes, please.